The following audio is from Foundation Life Bible Church. More information about Foundation Life is available at www.foundationlbc.com. So, I I had all the verses printed out on a stick-it note that I'll reference today, and I left it at home. So, uh, show of hands, who likes flipping to the verses if I, if I go there? Okay, so I will take my time. Uh, there's quite a bit. But anyway, so it's good to be here with you all. It's good to see all your smiling faces. Uh, today, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. We'll go through chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, and so Philippians uh, was written while Paul was in prison. It was his first imprisonment in Rome. It was probably written somewhere in 60 to 62 AD. And it's one of the what is known as the prison letters. And the others are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And uh, the city of Philippi was uh, the first uh, town or city in Macedonia, which is Greece, is the first church planted there kind of on that uh, continent or that country. So it's a special place for Paul. Uh, But in today's passage, what we're going to see, there might be a lot of familiar passages. Uh, There's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Who knows that that is called the Christological hymn? Show of hands. Mark, you do? Okay. Uh, Well, uh, we'll get to that. Uh, a lot of people say that this is a hymn that was there long before, and as hymns or songs, we know that that's often repeated, uh, and, and this is a section um, that it'll be good for us often to repeat, and we'll touch upon that. And also, another passage that we'll go over today is, at the end, Paul says, you know, that we're to shine like stars in the universe. So you might be familiar with these. But this section of letter, uh, Paul, it's, it's what's known as an exhortation. So Paul is writing to the church, and he's going to be, he, he's, an exhortation is an address or a communication uh, that emphatically urges someone to do something. So Paul is, uh, he really wants to get this across to the Philippians today, and I think to us as well. Uh, and in it, there are three things Paul's going to do with the Philippian church. He's going to talk to them about how they behave when they face opposition from the world around them. He's then going to move on. He's going to talk about, uh, he's going to make an appeal for renewed unity within the church. And the last section, he's going to talk about, uh, he's going to make a final appeal, and he's going to give us an application. And just to get the, the elephant in the room, why am I wearing this lovely footwear? Okay? Uh, usually I move around quite a bit. Uh, but you're not going to see me move quite today. I wish I could tell you it was some sports injury, uh, that it was something, you know, I was rock climbing or something, but, you know, my kids like to sleep in the family room, and I pull the mattress out, which is on the floor, and I'm standing on the mattress, which is on the floor, and I'm tucking a sheet into the couch, because that's where I'm going to lay for the night, and somehow I, I sprained my foot. So, uh, that's the story. Uh, I wish it was something different, but that's what it is. So, let's get started uh, with our verses today. So today, what Paul's going to tell us, and he starts out in the first verse, he's going to tell us the one thing, the one thing we need to know in life. And we all like the one thing, don't we? Uh, People make untold amount of money on that this is the one thing you need in your life. 
And Paul gets it out of, right out of the way at the very beginning. And I'm reading from the ESV, and Paul start, starts out. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's the one thing we have to know. And, and I think I heard Alicia say that Ian uses the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Is that right, Ian? Oh, okay. Well, I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible probably translates it the best. They translate it this way. Just one thing. Live your life in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the one thing uh, that Paul is saying that they need to do and we need to do. And again, the one thing that should be easy as Christians to live our life for Jesus, right? We can do that. That shouldn't be too difficult. I mean, go to church on Sunday, check. I read my Bible daily, check. I go to small group once a week, check. I listen to Caleb, check, right? But Paul goes through and he reminds us, he tells us how we need to live our life. And he tells us this because as I went through that list, I'm sure you all were standing there saying, yeah, I do that, yeah, I do that. But what do we then say? Well, I don't do it all the time, right? And so we need this because at the heart of it, at the heart of all this, we're, we're all self-centered to a degree, right? And the Bible tells us this. In Jeremiah 17.9, we are told that the heart is deceitful among all things. In Mark 7, 21 through 28, we are told that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, immortality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, Slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. That's a pretty long list. And the next one we're going to go to is Romans 3, 10 through 18. And Paul tells us there, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I had a professor once say that, you know, we all like to say that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he's like, that's right. And, you know, that's Hebrews um, 13.8. But he continued, he said, you know what? Mankind is the same yesterday, today, and will be the same tomorrow. And that's because we always sin. And those verses that I just spoke about, Jeremiah, Mark, and Romans do a good job of pointing that out, that we, we always turn away from God and turn to our self-interests. Um, so Paul's going to remind the Philippian church of what they need to do. That in times of opposition, what are we likely to do? We're likely to shrink away from the gospel. We can see that with Peter on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. He shrinks away from the gospel. Disunity in the church, that can happen. Disunity in our lives can happen. We see that with Paul and Barnabas and Acts when they're going on their second missionary journey, when they want to take John Mark with them. There's a heated debate. Paul doesn't want to take him. 
Barnabas does, and they get into an argument, and they split. Barnabas goes over to Crete, and Paul goes on his way. But later, Paul does make amends. He says, you know, bring John Mark back to me. He's done well. So Paul continues with verse 27, and he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now remember, Paul's in Rome, so he's not sure if, he wants to, if he's going to be able to come to him. He wants to. But what he says is, I want you guys to be striving side by side with one mind. So what does that mean to be of one mind together? And I think... Acts chapter 4 gives us a good example of what that looks like. See, in Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John. They're out preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and the Sadducees get upset by this because the Sadducees, you know, they don't believe in the resurrection. So what happens is Paul and John get pulled up before the council, and they don't know what to do. So what does the council tell them? And we see that in Acts 4.18. The council tells Peter and John that you're free to go. On one condition. You cannot preach the gospel. So what happens? You know, you can't preach the gospel. What are they going to do? And, you know, fast forward 2,000 years to today. Are we getting to that point where we can't preach the gospel? Uh, You know, when I was growing up, you could see TV shows where people, they'd have dinner and they'd pray. How often do we see that in restaurants today? If you're a teacher in here, I'm sure you could tell us how much schools have changed uh, from a Christian perspective in, in the last 20, 30, even 10 years, maybe. But back to Acts chapter 4, let's see what it looks like to be in one mind and live with unity. In Acts chapter 4, what do we see? If we look at verse 29, we'll start to see what happens. Verse 29 says this, and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. See, what they did is they didn't pray that God would resolve this in their favor. They didn't pray, God, help make this easier for me. They prayed, give us boldness to continue preaching the gospel when we've been told not to do it. Now, this is probably less than a year since Jesus has been crucified. So there's a real threat hanging in the air. And, and do you think they were scared? I'm, I'm sure that they were. But note, they pray for boldness to continue to face opposition and do what the gospel calls them to do. And so what we see here is that when you act in one mind and strive for that, there's unity in that. And we see that at the end. In Acts 4, it tells us that they all were living together and no one wanted for anything. Unity brought them together. So, Paul continues in verse 28 and he he says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, that this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, here we don't know who his opponents are. But I think we can look at, chapter, at verse 30 and we can kind of get an idea of maybe who these opponents were. And again, we can go to Acts and see this. And we'll go to Acts 16. This is when Paul gets to Philippi. And if we look at uh, Acts 16 through 40, it, it tells us about this slave girl that was demon-possessed. And, and her bosses, for lack of a better word, would send her out and she would like fortune tell for people. And they would charge people, and they would make money off of her, and, and they, they made a pretty good living off of this girl. Well, Paul, he comes by, and they cast the demon out of her. So her bosses get upset because she's not making any money for him, and they bring him up before the, the powers that be in, in Philippi, the authorities. And they're charged with customs that are not lawful because, uh, again, the slave girl is no longer profitable. And what happens to them? They're beaten with rods and thrown into prison opposition from the gospel or to the gospel Paul ends up going back that was on his second missionary journey on his third missionary journey Paul goes back and visits Philippi but right before he goes he's in Ephesus and there's a huge riot in Ephesus they go to the local uh, theater as it were and this is a theater that could fit 25,000 people and you have 25,000 people chanting great is Artemis great is Artemis Artemis is the Greek god. Uh, and, and so I'm sure when Paul goes back there, he's telling all the people in Philippi about, about all his travels. So that includes opposition. And what we see is wherever Paul goes on these journeys, he always faces opposition. But he never stops preaching the gospel. In fact, he's writing his letter now from Rome. And how did he get to Rome? Well, Acts uh, uh, 22 tells us that story. He goes back. And, and he kind of ticks off the leaders in Jerusalem. And, they, they, and the Romans arrest him. And they're, gonna, they're getting ready to flog him again. And Paul says, you can't do that. I'm a Roman citizen. Now, Paul is he's Hebrew. He's Jewish. He's a Roman citizen uh, more than likely because he grew up in Tarsus, which is a Roman colony. And he bought his, his father bought the Roman citizenship. So that's important because... If you're a Roman citizen, you can't be flogged. You can't be beaten and interrogated that way. And so what that does is they can't do that. And he appeals his way all the way to Caesar, and that's how he gets to Rome this time. And the rest of Acts details that journey to Rome. So Paul does that, uh, and, they, and they know he's there for opposition along the way. So these are very well some of the opponents that... that, that Paul faced, and that very well maybe the Philippians are facing now as well. And then he goes on, um, and this was confusing. And my hope is to make it clear, uh, and I hope that I can do that. But this is difficult, and it has to do with the translation. And Paul writes, and he says that he's heard that they are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and from God. So what does that mean? Uh, again, I think uh, the net maybe does a better job, the New English translation, of translating this. And it, it says it this, this way. It says, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. So what's the difference? Basically, what they, 
what he's taken out is, uh, it's assigned to them. That's that part, them. So the, the, the net is to their destruction and them. So it's kind of personal. And again, it has to do with translation. And we kind of lose what the meaning is in this translation. Uh, but essentially, uh, the point here is uh, that the opponents, they're the recipients of their destruction. And the believers possess their salvation. Okay? And... and the best way I can think of this is it's like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. And he's kind of talking about what Rome would do. They had this triumphal entry into Rome. When they'd go out to war and they'd have all these captives, they'd bring them in. And there'd be flowers on the ground. They'd be burning incense. And to Rome, that smell of the flowers and the incense marked victory. Now, to the enemies, it marked defeat. So you have... One smell, but it can mean different things to different people. So and I think that's what he's getting at here, is that, look, standing up in the opposition to your opponents, it, you know as a Christian that ultimately we're going to be victorious. Okay, God's going to win in the end. We know that. Uh, and so this is that sign. Uh, and so I don't know if that made it more clear. Hopefully it did. But, but essentially it's like you can view an event from two different ways. But as Christians, we know that we are going to be victorious. And I think that's the point Paul's trying to make here. But anyway, he says, it has been granted for your salvation. So what does that mean? Uh, does it mean that you need to stand up to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. And so if, we, if you look quickly back in Philippians 1.19... Paul says this, For I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the word deliverance uh, and the word salvation here is the same word in the original language. But they're translated two different ways. So, context is how we figure out what stuff means. So, if I were to say to you, my refrigerator is running you would all know that it's not actually running on two legs, right? So we understand that context, and my example is easy. Now, uh, back to the text, this isn't so easy. But I think if we look at verse 29, it's going to help us, because we see it's God who's doing this. It's God who will deliver us unto our ultimate salvation, and also salvation from our opponents. And I think that's kind of the part he was trying to make earlier about uh, this is a sign of their destruction and your salvation earlier. But now, what this does not mean, it does not mean that God always is going to deliver us here on earth, that we're always going to win every battle here on earth. And we know this by just looking at the apostles. I mean, 11 of the 12 apostles were all martyred for standing up for Jesus. Okay? But we know ultimately, whether in life or death, uh, that we place our faith in God that we'll be victorious. So another interesting one is here in 29 at the end. It says that as Christians, we've been granted to suffer for Jesus' sake. Granted is an interesting choice of words, is it not? See, in our culture today, it's not really, we don't think of suffering as a benefit, as a good thing. But granted is defined as to give freely as a favor. So our suffering for Christ is actually a favor from God. Now, why is that? Well, the easy answer is because Jesus suffered. 
Paul suffered in bringing the good news. But I think, especially in America, we've lost sight of that. I think predominantly because in America, you know, we've kind of grown up and we're a Christian nation. I have a, a, a good buddy of mine who was in my wedding, and I, I gave him all Bibles and I wrote something in it. And I, I don't remember what I wrote in it, but I do remember his response to it. He looked at me and he said, I'm a Christian. What do you don't think I'm a Christian? Now, I didn't say anything. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, but his life, if you look at it, bears no evidence of Christ in his life. Now, uh, I can sit here and take Mark, for example, and say, I see evidence of Christ in Mark's life. Now, does that mean I know if either of them is going to go to heaven? No, I don't know that. Only God knows that. You know, in fact, in Matthew, they tell us that there'll be people at the end times and they'll say, Lord, Lord, I, I did all these great things in your name. And Jesus is going to say, get away from me. I didn't know you. But fruit in our life is indicative of where our hearts are. And I think that's the point. Uh, but before I get too far down this rabbit trail, my point is, that I think in America especially, just being a Christian, you were kind of a Christian because you were born that way. And I, I fear that that is now changing. So when and if opposition comes in our lives for the gospel of Jesus, we have to remember what Paul wrote here. And that is we, we must stand firm in one spirit with one mind for the gospel against those who oppose Jesus. And we do this so that our lives are lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, to the next part, the next section of the exhortation um, is about unity. So the first section dealt with pressures from outside the church. And here we're going to deal with uh, pressures from inside the church. And Paul begins chapter 2 this way. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the ESV doesn't do this. I think the NIV and the NASB do, but they include if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort, if there is any love. And I think that's important just because it shows the emphasis of this. And this is another thing that has to do with uh, translations uh, from the original language to this. We kind of miss out. But what, but what Paul is saying here is this is present now. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort and love. There is participation in the Spirit. So it's not one where we might think it is an if. It's not a question. What Paul is saying here is this is going on right now. And so because this is going on right now, he goes back and he says, live your life in a worthy manner. That's what the so, or some might have therefore at the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, what's it mean? It's relating this section back to verse 27. Um, but then Paul writes, he goes, complete my joy. And how are they supposed to complete his joy? Well, be of the same mind, having the same love, and being united in the same spirit and having one purpose. This is basically what he said in verse 27. 
So what Paul has told corporate churches, he's now telling us to do individually. Um, and, and, and this is difficult, and we see this in verse 3, where Paul starts, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And as I said earlier, you know, we are a me-first culture. You know, it's the one thing, right? What's our one thing? Well, there's a lot of one things. One, there's, you know, five minutes to uh, a better whatever. I need to find five minutes to how to not hurt your foot when you're 48 years old. But there's all this self-help stuff. You know, we have eight, I have an eight-minute workout app on my phone, which may work if I didn't spend 80 minutes watching Netflix and eating potato chips after that. But... My point is uh, that, that we can be very self-involved and very self-centered, and, and that doesn't lead to what Paul asks us to do at the remainder of that verse. He goes on and says, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And I think that's the hard part. Uh, considering others more significant than yourselves, looking at the interest of others. Now, what it doesn't say, it doesn't say forget your own interests and look at the interests of others. No, we're to do both. Um, and in our world where we can get, you know, you do what you do and I'll do what I do, or God helps those who helps themselves, uh, that can be hard to do. But here, Paul is telling us that we need to look out for others, and we see that in Acts 4. And that's only accomplished when our, our primary goal, our one thing, is Jesus. See, when it comes about me, it becomes about what I want. And that's not unifying. Uh, Paul then continues uh, with what is known as the, the Christological hymn. And I, I, I was going to ask Mark before this if he could like, create a song for this. Maybe that's something you can work on. But anyway, uh, you know, what are songs for? And I think songs, they help you remember things, right? Now, who remembers Sam's, uh, um, what was it, Sammy? The, uh, the, the no, the, the patient song. Oh, yeah. who, who's been singing that? I've been singing it. <laughs> so, but anyway, songs are there to help us remember things. And, and so what Paul does here is we have this Christological hymn, and it helps us to remember how we're to act. And this is the example Paul uses here. The example is Christ. And he says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? So what he's saying is, you possess this as Christians already. You have this mind in you, and it's the Holy Spirit. And we see this when we go to John 14, uh, verse 26. And here it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I've said. So the Holy Spirit is there to help us to remember to be like Jesus. Now, Paul continues here in verse 6. And there's, a, there's three words that we kind of have to understand here. And those words are form, grasp, and emptying. And, and there's been gobs and gobs of all sorts of things written on these three words. So... Uh, Paul writes, uh, it begins in verse 6, he says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, now what does that mean, the form of God? See, I think the NLT, if anyone has this, does a much better job of translating it. The NLT simply writes, though he was God. See, we have to understand that Jesus is God. 
And Hebrews 1.3 tells us this as well. It says, he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I think all of us here say, hey, do you believe in the Trinity? We'd say yes and amen. And I think we do a very good job of separating uh, the Trinity. We understand that, that God the Father is an entity, that Jesus the Son is an entity, and the Holy Spirit is an entity, right? And this is up here. Uh, I apologize for my artistic work. Uh, if there's any artists out there, maybe next time you could help me with this. But this is known as the shield of the Trinity. And this is used to help us to understand the Trinity. Uh, there's a, a great website, uh, and it, it, the, the name escapes me right now, but ask Chris Newman, he'll know. And it's these two uh, Irish guys. And they go through and they, 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 they make fun of, but it, it's, it's educational about all the ways that the Trinity is mishandled. And I would always say, uh, you know, if you have a, an example of the Trinity, it's probably not a good one, so you shouldn't use it. But we all want to explain it in some way, shape, or form. This, I think, is very good. See, what we see is, here's God, and the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, right? But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. It all goes this way. See, we, that, at least in my mind, that is so hard to grasp. But we have to understand that. We have to understand that Jesus is God. Uh, and, and there was a recent survey uh, done by Ligonier Ministries and uh, a publishing company. The name is, I think, Lifeway Ministries. It was done last fall, and it's called State of, the, State of Theology. And you can look it up at stateoftheology.com. And they asked, I think, 25 or 30 questions. But here's just three questions that I think help us uh, get our head around the fact that we have to understand who Jesus is. So in this survey, uh, they, they asked a whole bunch of people, and you can break it down a whole bunch of categories. So these are people who would define themselves as evangelicals. 26% of people who would call themselves evangelicals agree with this statement, and you can somewhat agree or wholeheartedly agree, basically. Uh, this is the statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Another one, 44% of those claiming to be evangelical Christians strongly agree with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, 12% somewhat agree with that. So that gives us over 50% of people who would call themselves evangelicals would say, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Lastly, 15% strongly agree 32% somewhat agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Now, those are absolutely frightening. The first two show us that there are people who claim to be evangelicals that don't even know who Jesus is. The last one shows, I think, how self-centered we are to think that 47% of people who call themselves evangelical Christians say we're good by nature. Jeremiah, Mark, and Romans that I read earlier paint a pretty good picture showing that we're not good. Right? Romans in 3.23 tells us no one does good. In Mark 10.18, Jesus, Jesus is called good teacher. And what does Jesus say? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Look at David. David was considered a man after God's own heart. What did David do? 
David was an adulterous, lying murderer. Would you call that good? See, we have to understand who Jesus is so that we can have a mind like Jesus. Jesus is God. Paul continues to go on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So these two terms, grasped and emptied. Grasped means that even though Jesus was fully divine, he did not use his divinity to his advantage. Jesus emptying himself means that Jesus set aside his divinity for a period of time. I think John MacArthur articulated it best in the notes of his study Bible. He says this, This emptying was a self-renunciation, not an emptying of himself, of his deity, nor an exchange of his deity for humanity. See, Jesus, who was God, gave that up. And we have to understand that so we can see the significance of the last part of this hymn. There are people, there are churches in America that will teach that Jesus was not God. And so we have to understand who Jesus is. Now, he goes on in 7 and 12, and he, he says this, uh, but being born in the likeness of man, or let me go back, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, uh, what does it mean to be obedient to death on a cross? Well, Isaiah 53, which we read a little bit of earlier, and I believe that was in our kids' lessons, 1 through 12 tells us this. I'm only going to look at verse 5 and 6 and 10 because it's pretty long. So I'll read that. Verse 5 says this. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, right here we see it again. We all turn away from the gospel of Jesus. But Jesus came and died for us. And the obedient part. Here, here's where we see Jesus is obedient. In verse 10 it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. See, it was God's plan to crucify Jesus. And what we see is that it tells us that this was for the glory of God. Now, as I said, going through this, we see, hopefully we, see, we understand that at the beginning of him, we see who Jesus was. We can, we can see the, just the awe-inspiring reality of what Jesus did for us at the end of it. See, Jesus, who, who was God, he gave that up, and he was obedient to the Father, and the Father was glorified in that. But in this glorification, we who place our trust in Jesus are saved. And that really blows my mind, because, again, in here, what Paul is saying is, like, we need to be humble like Jesus. 
You know, how many of us would be that humble? I mean, he's God, and he gives all that up to come and die on a cross. I mean, you know, if you're like me, you know, you get, you get a little power, and you're like the little green guy in the hobbit running around for the gold ring saying, my precious, my precious, right? I mean, what, what's the saying? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And we see that throughout history. We see that in our society. We see that in our churches. We see that in our families. But what Paul calls us here to is to be humble and obedient like Jesus was, even to the death. And death on a cross is significant because to a Jewish person, hanging on a tree was to be cursed. So not only did he die, but he was cursed. But Jesus was obedient to God for the glory of God. Now, uh, my conclusion today is the last seven verses. And it's going to give us the why. Why do we have to have the same mind? Why do we want to live like Jesus? And verse 12 starts out like this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without a blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. All right, so Paul tells us to obey and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? I think what Paul's trying to tell us here is don't get complacent in your life. Don't rest on your laurels. Remember King David? We talked about him. So when David's affair happened with Bathsheba, what was he doing? 2 Samuel 11 1 tells us, it tells us that David should have been out with the army, but instead he was home. And I'm sure David excused his absence with some excuse, much like we do with our little sins, right? Oh, it's okay if I lie this one time. I'm not hurting anybody. But what does the Bible tell us about our sin? It's like yeast. It grows and it spreads. And soon those little sins become big sins. And before you know it, you don't even recognize where you are anymore. I'm sure that's where David was when he looked back on this whole ordeal with Bathsheba. In fact, Nathan comes to him and tells him a story about it. And, and it's about a, a, a very wealthy man who has all these sheep and, and, and this other guy who has one sheep. And the rich man takes the sheep and sacrifices it so he can... Uh, have a, a feast, and David says, I want that man brought before me, and I'm going to put him to death. David can't even recognize that Nathan's talking about him because his sin has been so great, and Nathan says, David, it's you. Now, what's the penalty for that in the Old Testament? It's death. God chose grace and lets David live, not because David was anything special, because God had made a promise to David. It was for God's glory. But all that is to say, working out, we need to constantly work out our salvation. I think, you know, it's, it's always re repenting. A professor once said it was a pretty good thing. It's like a five-second prayer. He said, when you sin, no matter how big or how small it is, just say this, God, forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for this and keep whatever holy unto you. And it's a five-second prayer. It only takes that long. And I think that's important because sin if you let it grow, can get you so far down the road. But he goes on and he says, 
uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if we go over to chapter 4, verse 2, we see there's some personal applications here for the church of Philippi. We see that there's two ladies that are arguing. It says, I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See, what happens is we take on a I'm right attitude, right? A me first attitude. And what Paul's been saying here is that's the attitude that divides us. We have to have the mind of Christ that unites us. Be humble. What's it say back up here in verse 3? Count, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Arguments usually start because we don't do that. We want to dig our heels in and say, I'm right, you're wrong. And it happens the most with our own family, you know. But remember, let's not do that. Let's have the mind of Jesus. Let's be humble like Jesus. Now, we get to the, what is the purpose of living a life that's worthy of the gospel? And we see that here in the end of verse 15. And it says this. It says, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The purpose of this is we're to be different. We're to be a shining example of what Christ has done so that when people look at us, they can say, you're different than everybody else. Why is that? And our response is always, it's Jesus Christ in my life. It's Jesus. I follow him. It's not me. It's not my wants. It's Jesus. And this has always been God's plan. It was God's plan with the Israelites. It's his plan with the church today that we are shining examples for Jesus in this crooked world so that when they look at, look at us, they ask, why are you different? And that's the point. We're to be different so that we bring glory to God. And we do that by holding fast. What's it say? Hold fast to the word of life. And that's the gospel of Jesus. That's the one thing above everything else to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus, to hold fast to the gospel. That's the most important thing. Well, thank you. Uh, I will close in prayer today and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, for Jesus and, and what he has accomplished for us for your glory. We pray that as we go about our week, say that we remember the, the humbleness that Jesus showed in, in coming to earth to die on a cross for your glory so that we could have uh, eternal peace with you, Lord. Help us act that way when we face opposition from the world. Help us act that way when there's disagreement in our church body and our families. Help us act that way personally, always repenting and confessing our sins so that we are a shining example for you, Lord. For it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to audio from Foundation Life Bible Church, located in Greenwood, Indiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Foundation Life Bible Church, please visit us online at www.foundationlbc.com.